The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only. They're not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on The Lab Report, Dr. Elizabeth Raskin. Award-winning colorectal surgeon and actually a fan of our quirky little show here, Michael. What? How yeah. is that possible? She listens to this show. What? I know. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Well, it's official. It's summer. It's in the middle of summer. Okay. The ants are out. Here we go with the ants. They're everywhere. Here we go with the ants. They must be stopped. You're obsessed. Hello! Hey, Michael Chapman. How are you today? I'm great, Patty Devers. How are you doing? I am crushing it and living my best life because I am unaffected by You know what I'm crushing. Ants. I know. I you know. know what I'm crushing around like, my house? Dude, this is getting out of hand with you. I've got so many traps, too. How how do you stop them? <laughs> I don't understand. <sighs> anyway, this is, a, this is not a show about ants. This is actually a podcast called The Lab Reports, where we talk about things like functional medicine, specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutic, and all the rest of that fun stuff that you like listening to. Yes, and if you like listening to the show and you're back, welcome back. Thank hey. you so much for your support. If you're brand new, hey, we're Patty and Michael. This is going to be fun. And hopefully those who know the show would go to iTunes and Spotify, anywhere mm. podcasts mm-hmm. can be heard, and perhaps leave us a rating, follow us along there, leave us yeah, some do words, us those things. a review. Yeah, that helps. You know, sure. it, it does. helps with the metrics and the algorithms totally and all the things that yeah. help get more people here. It helps helps us you yes, know what i mean it does. we're just sitting here in this broom closet we don't know if anyone's listening to this so <laughs> let us know positive <laughs> negative positive well, positive i'm gonna tell you that there are some people listening because we get a lot of great feedback you know i scour through all of the email that we get at podcast at gdx.net yeah and i do want to give a shout out to maha she's over in the uk and, yeah. and she sent us the email about our non-pathogenic parasites episodes and i just love when we get feedback i love further insight so if you're out there listening number one Shout out Maha, and if you have further feedback, just email us. We love to hear from you. Yeah. Also, you can send it to podcast at gdx.net. That's our email address, and that's where you can send your disclaimers, which if you want to know what they are, maybe we should put it on Instagram, put it on the website. Yeah. You can read it off, record it into your iPhone, email it to us. We'll put it on here. You'll be famous. Oh, that's brilliant. Thanks, Oliver. I thought so, too. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Patty. What do we got going on? What are we talking about today? Well, I'm super excited because we are going to speak to Dr. Elizabeth Raskin. Like I said, oh, yeah. fan of the show. And we just happened to find out she's like an evil genius, brilliant woman yeah. who's so accomplished and has so much great insight. I'm excited. To she's one on. of those accomplished types. <laughs> you know what I mean? You she's, know these people? She's done it all. She's uh, award winning. Like just you, the CV the in CV, itself blows it's your mind. It's a CV that you cannot put a staple through if, they, if yeah. you catch my drift. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's who we're dealing with. And so she's agreed to bring all of her genius expertise onto our show. And I'm super psyched. So let's give her a call. My CV doesn't even require a staple well, or we, a paperclip or anything. I, we'll staple it just, just to make you feel better. So, Michael Chapman. Patty Devers. Our new friend, Elizabeth Raskin, is here. Pumped. How psyched are you? Excited. <laughs> I know. Very You've been excited. dying to meet her. <laughs> well, for those of you who are not familiar, Dr. Elizabeth Raskin is a master robotic colorectal surgeon and the surgical director for the Margolis Family Inflammatory Bowel Disease Program with the Hoag's Digestive Health Institute. Prior to joining Hoag, Dr. Raskin served as chief of the Division of Colon and Rectal Surgery and director of robotic surgical education at the University of California, Davis Medical Center. Dr. Raskin received her bachelor's degree from the University of Oregon and a medical degree from the University of Nevada. She completed a surgical residency with Tufts University School of Medicine and a surgical fellowship in colon and rectal surgery from the University of Minnesota. Just like me. Just like me. (laughs) Dr. Raskin is currently a fellow at the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. With nearly 20 years of experience in state-of-the-art technologies and surgical techniques, Dr. Raskin's patient-centric approach provides cutting-edge, comprehensive, compassionate care to improve surgical outcomes and speed recovery. Her expertise includes laparoscopic and robot-assisted surgical techniques to treat complex colon, rectal, and anal conditions. Dr. Raskin is extensively published in peer-reviewed literature, and she is often asked to lecture, teach, and train surgeons of all levels, both nationally and internationally. And as if that weren't enough, she's also a creative writer, endurance athlete, and cacti garner. Just like me. (laughs) And with that, 
Welcome to the show, Thank Elizabeth. You so much. It's so great to meet you finally. Thanks for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. So, I feel like I know you guys already. <laughs> Fan of the show. Don't tell me you've heard this little program. <laughs> so, Dr. Raskin, let's start with some basics. You're an expert who's dedicated your life to the colon. So, can we just start with a little bit of the physiology function of the colon as a refresher uh, for clinicians and patients who are listening? Like, what, what makes the colon so important? Well, can I preface by saying, and you may already know this, but most physicians or surgeons have a favorite organ. Oh, and okay. if you haven't figured this out, but my favorite organ is the large intestine. So yes. the colon and the rectum. And to most people, that's a really weird statement. Mm. <laughs> but I basically developed this profound love of the colon back when I was a second year resident. And I can even remember the exact time and day and the place I was when I developed this love affair. Mm. It was two in the morning. I'm working with my attending. I'm a second year resident at Winchester Hospital, just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And we're taking care of a patient with perforated diverticulitis. Mm. And there we are, like four arms deep mm. in bowel and stool and pus. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, wow, mm. <laughs> this is so awesome. <laughs> I want to do this for the rest of my life. Naturally, everyone would come to that conclusion in that moment. And it smells and it reeks in there. Right. And I am happier than, you know, a pig and you know what, right? <laughs> and so um, my love affair kind of started then. I thought about a couple of other fields. I thought maybe I'd be a pediatric surgeon. Maybe I'd be a reconstructive surgeon. But I basically love the majesty of the colon. And, you know, I tell non-physicians this and they're shaking their head like, this is such a weird topic. But... <laughs> But it's basically in the simplicity. So, so the colon is, on some levels, very simple. It's a, it's a channel, or the intestines are a channel from you know, taking foodstuffs, partially digested from one point to the other. But then you think about what else it does. You know, the, the complexity of the colon, of reabsorbing water, reabsorbing electrolytes, and then being host to this incredible microbiome is really what you know, continues that love affair for me. It's uh, it's really a magical organ. Mm -hmm. And I think people don't give it enough credit because there is some stigma attached to, you know, bowel function. But I think we're, we're, we're gaining in that field where people are a bit more open-minded and they want to know more. Um, but I think the colon is important and I love the colon, but here's the weird thing. It's not as important as you think. Mm -hmm. Uh-oh. Um, you know, like, da da <laughs> Yeah, no, I think dun. I have something for that, actually. <laughs> <Later>. <laughs> and the reason I say that is as a surgeon, sometimes I have to take out parts of the colon. Sometimes mm -hmm. I have to take out the entire colon. Right. And guess what? Patients can live a totally normal, healthy life mm -hmm. without it. Yeah. So when it's in place, there are certain functions that it provides. And then when it's gone, we have things that might be missing, but we can figure out strategies for patients who've had surgery to continue to thrive. Mm. Interesting. I see mm. what you're saying there. Yeah. Well, that, I guess that means that your favorite organ, the one that ranks up number one for you, as compared to like the liver, which you can't live without, mm -hmm. which might be when I'm thinking about it, maybe my favorite, just because it's so ridiculous, all the things it does. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, that's interesting to, to kind of frame it that way. Yeah, I don't like the liver. Oh. Sorry, but <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> but but I'll tell you why. That yeah. sucker bleeds so yes. much. Mm. It does not take any kind of nonsense. You hit that thing in a blunt accident, and that sucker bleeds in the operating room. Yeah. And that's the thing that bothers me the most. I'm like, would you just quit it? Right. Just stop, okay? <laughs> stop so, a sensitive yeah. Broken like a surgeon. Spleen's <laughs> even worse. I hate to oh, say it, the spleen is really? like the all-time worst. So. <laughs> but I love this. I love this talk. And I want to say this just outside of all of it, having gone through conventional training and, and residency, whenever I see a female surgeon, I just have this Ah, because I know the rigors that it takes to become a surgeon, and it's a very male-dominated field. To, to so to see such a successful surgeon just warms my heart, Elizabeth. I just need you to hear that. Aww. How much I respect you, Thanks. but but as a colorectal surgeon, you are in a unique position, right? To see the end stages of a lot of these chronic conditions that we talk about all the time here on the show, and and the challenges that these patients face. So, what would you say are the biggest issues your patients deal with 
not only as they're battling active GI disease, but also after surgery? What are, what are the biggest challenges that you deal with? So I'll start by saying I have the great privilege to take care of patients with complex digestive conditions. And I really say that because I learn so much from these patients and I really feel grace to be able to take part in their medical and their surgical journey. And in my position right now as the director for, from a surgical standpoint for an inflammatory bowel disease program, we see a lot of patients with complex ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And patients who face conditions like that will have a myriad of symptoms that can be so debilitating. And you can start by thinking of the most obvious things. When patients have a condition like Crohn's disease, they will have abdominal pain, they'll have an alteration in their bowel function, they may have obstructive symptoms mm -hmm. where gas and stool doesn't flow through the, uh, the GI tract very well. And so patients will naturally start to eat in a different way or in mm -hmm. fact not eat. Mm -hmm. And right. so when we start to think about the nutritional issues that patients with these conditions face, it's, it's one that they cannot eat and digest well. And the second is that they choose not to because it worsens their symptoms. Right. And as we know, if you don't feed the GI tract, you're not nourishing the cells. You can have all of this um, deterioration of your health that ranges from nutritional um, deficiencies, vitamins, minerals, to um, really protein and calorie malnutrition. Mm. I've seen patients with kwashiorkor in wow. California. Wow. I see it often mm. actually wow. um, in the patients that have Crohn's disease because they become so deficient in protein that they appear like patients and individuals that are in famine-stricken regions, or even historically, if you think back to um, concentration camps, I've right. seen patients who look like that. Wow. And what's unfortunate is that these patients are looking for solutions. And many times, physicians or even surgeons will say, I don't really want to take care of you because I don't want to hurt you. Mm. But the problem is, is that we have to. We have to take care of these patients. And it starts by figuring out, can we rehabilitate a patient to get them readier for surgery or to avoid surgery. Mm -hmm. And then if you're going to do surgery, how do you rehabilitate them so that they can get their nutrition back, they can get their energy back, mm -hmm. their sleep, their exercise, their well-being. And these are possible with a really comprehensive program. Yeah. So. And, and to, to be that malnourished, you're not going to heal after surgery. I mean, oh, absolutely. That's yeah. just yeah. so profound. And it does make sense. You'd stop eating. It hurts. Mm -hmm. I'm, I have diarrhea. Yeah. I'm not going to eat any food. Yeah. That's shocking. And it's, I think it's one of the things that makes us treating IBD even prior to surgery and, and if at the onset of the disease so problematic and so difficult is because uh, it is so difficult to, to figure out what some of the triggers might be, how to get that under control to the point where they actually feel confident and comfortable actually eating. Right. Right. That's right. And a lot of patients will have a delayed diagnosis, mm -hmm. whether it's just lack of access to care or whether they think it's something else. They will say, oh, it's just I can't eat these foods. And mm -hmm. the reality is that they may have a true inflammatory condition that is it's not a dietary um, reaction or a true allergy. It's that they have chronic inflammation mm -hmm. and I take care of mostly patients with Crohn's disease, and I will say that it is one of the most complex conditions that there is because it can affect the entire GI tract from the mouth to the anal canal, and it's relapsing if we don't get it under control. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we really have the biggest opportunity to impact patients' health is by figuring out how do we keep them in the healthiest state that they can be, and how do we take care of them longitudinally during the, their lifetimes. And so I feel very privileged to be in this space with yeah. these patients. And, and I think that's the beauty of the GI effects, right? To do a stool test, thinking they have a food sensitivity, there's a high calprotectin, uh, yeah. which sends them down that path for an earlier diagnosis. So yeah. 
that yeah. that makes me happy that our tests exist. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and one of the things too, you know, from a clinician to clinician standpoint, we have uh, a lot of fear around somebody getting surgery because we're all the unknowns post-op as far as how they're going to be able to, you know, really recover and how and and overall recover their GI function and, and to be kind of where they were prior. So, what have you seen long-term as far as post-op issues, and and maybe have you seen them becoming uh, less of a problem as, as the days go on and as you support people? I would say the biggest solution or the biggest impact that we can make uh, for patients undergoing surgery is to prehabilitate them. Mm-hmm. And so what I mean by this is not just dietarily and not just, um, you know, uh, physically with, you know, PT or OT, but it's to mentally prepare patients for what they may need. And Historically, we've always kind of pushed surgery as the last ditch option for mm-hmm. patients where we'll say, let's try everything and then we'll get to surgery. Well, interestingly, in the field of inflammatory bowel disease, sometimes we take the top down approach um, first and foremost because we realize that medications and um, diet may not actually improve the level of inflammation that we have. And so surgery is really warranted up front. And then we put a patient into surgical remission. And that's the moment that we start to rebuild their health. That's the moment they can start to eat again. They can start to recover their microbiome. They can start to sleep. And sleep is so important to keeping inflammation down. Um, and clearly all the other factors, uh, you know, physical, fitness, um, I would even say spiritual well-being. And this is an area that in our program, we really provide more of an integrative approach to our surgery than I think traditionally I was taught. And this is what lends, you know, lends me to seek the background and the training at the Andrew Weil um, Integrative Medicine Program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at I love that. And I am so happy that you are combining these two worlds because I think it's going to make a huge difference out there. And there are a lot of clinicians out there who are non-surgical in nature, mm-hmm. right? You have a bunch of doctors out there. Dr. Raskin has performed surgery on my patient. She's done a fantastic job. They're doing great. Now she's going to send them back to me. What's the best advice you would give to those non-surgical clinicians who are now going to take your patients? What are the, what's the best advice you can give them long term to deal with that? That's a great question, and I think this is something we're still formulating, but the thing that is most important is to have patience, Mm. patience and patience. (laughs) And the reason I say that is because these are chronic conditions that have happened over a long period of time that then lead typically to surgery. And so surgery doesn't radically fix patients. Mm. And in, in fact, when we're dealing with patients with Crohn's disease, we don't really we don't cure people. We can heal them, but we don't cure them of a condition because it's a chronic, incurable, relapsing disease. But to, to number one, have patience, and then to recognize that we need to rebuild over time. And that means clearly from a dietary standpoint, but also from a pain control standpoint, you're not gonna rapidly taper patients off of pain medicine, they may have had a dependence on mm. opioids right. uh, for for years. In fact, there's some data that suggests about 30% of patients with um, inflammatory bowel disease come to surgery with an opiate dependence. Wow. Mm. And so wow. you can't just stop their medication right, as soon as surgery is done. You, right. you taper and you look at long-term strategies for patients to recover. But I think a lot of this you know, help that can be provided once surgery is finished is really thinking about what does healing entail? It entails obviously, like we mentioned, rebuilding the GI system and allowing an anastomosis to heal, allowing a patient to start eating in a more um, diverse fashion than they had been. Mm -hmm. There's so many patients we get that narrow their dietary intake in such a massive way because they feel like they cannot eat anything it will trigger or set off um, symptoms that they really don't want to have but to give the courage back to the patients to start to eat again Mm. and to recognize that fiber is not a villain Mm. right we we need fiber it may not be that all fibers and the quantity of fiber is great from the beginning but we need to start 
adding back in foods that had been um, restricted in their mind for months or years. And so the primary care provider can really say, let's take this step by step. Let's figure out how to get you there on all these levels from you know, decreasing narcotics to increasing your physical activity to decreasing stress. I think this is one of the main areas that I had zero training in in my traditional surgical education that now I put a lot of emphasis on with my patients, mm. which is asking them, what are those contributors to stress in your life and how can we heal those away so that you can really focus on staying as healthy as you can and avoid the operating room again. Right. So Right. Yeah. And even what came to mind as you were talking is that mental emotional piece of this like addictive personalities this chronic pain these chronic conditions this afraid of food there's a lot of mental emotional things that need to be dealt with there too that i think often go unaddressed chronically you know yeah i i mean it's kind of the nature of a lot of uh, chronic, chronic, chronic disease yeah, yeah. exactly and yeah. and i was going to have a question too around and it might be better for a little bit later, but just sort of your experience for seeing um, the the frequency or or maybe even the severity of some of these chronic diseases, and in your case, IBD especially, um, if you've noticed, you know, trends of that becoming more and more prevalent. I guess is uh, you know just getting your lens into it. Yeah, I, these conditions are more prevalent, and it's not just I would say numbers, but what we hear, what we are seeing is that populations of individuals that traditionally did not have inflammatory bowel disease now have higher rates of that. Hmm. So we used to think about certain populations that had like an Ashkenazi Jewish hmm. background or a northern and northern European and Scandinavian background having a higher rate of inflammatory bowel disease. But now we realize that this is very common in um, African American populations and Asian patients and so it's it's all individuals around the world that can be vulnerable to these conditions and we didn't see that back it up by you know 50 years ago mm -hmm. it really was um, narrowly experienced and I think that that's something we have to be mindful of is that when we have populations of patients that may not have the best access to health care that they will be underdiagnosed they'll come to treatment late so surgical rates, are actually much higher in those patients mm. because of that lack of diagnosis right. in a reasonable time frame, right. and um, and then it's also availability of high quality food mm -hmm. and mm. Um, availability of met medications to keep patients um, in medical remission. This is a really big issue for yeah. patients around the globe. Yeah, that access. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we get a lot here at Genova, because, uh, you know, we offer stool testing as one of our, our primary testing. Uh, Flagship products. They, thank you. I don't know why I couldn't get that. <laughs> um, but uh, we get a lot of questions around, can a patient still do a stool test with, if they've had a colectomy or a partial colectomy? And, you know, we're always saying, yes, there's a lot of actual information there. We analyze things for pancreatic function and pathogens, things of that nature. However, when it comes to some of the, the more subtle findings, like you know levels of certain microbiota, um, there's a little bit more of an unknown based on the fact that this person does not have a, a full colon in the sense that uh, you know our, our healthy cohort and our, our people that we established it had. So what's your take on, um, on, on doing a stool test like this? And what have you seen as it relates to like the small intestine um, and whether, you know, how, how understanding someone's microbiome post-op is is doable this is a really fascinating question and i specifically would love to take a deep dive from a research standpoint on this because with the number of patients that lose a portion of their colon or their entire colon and their rectum which is com i would say the most common patient population that would need that are those that are afflicted by really severe ulcerative colitis, mm -hmm. where we'll do a total proctocolectomy. Mm -hmm. So removing the entire rectum and colon, patients are left with either an end ileostomy, so a surgically created opening through which the small bowel um, then empties into a bag that's adherent to the skin, or we'll do an internal reconstruction of the small bowel into what we call an ileal pouch anal anastomosis. So we will 
we will create like a neo rectum for patients mm -hmm. and that will be essentially attached to their anal canal and so that patients have continence in the most traditional sense but other patients will will need surgery to remove portions of their bowel and so to answer your question what would we find if we tested these patients well there is some data on this in the literature and a really fascinating study that i read from the 1980s uh, you know mm. people were looking at this even back then uh, out of denmark suggested that if you have even a small portion of your colon that the body can recover and have a very diverse microbiome mm. even in a shortened uh, large intestine mm. now that's different when you take away the entire colon mm. and the rectum. And I had to start thinking about why would that be? And I think the main thing is when you lose the colon, you lose a lot of those goblet cells that are making your glycoproteins that are sitting on the yeah. colon, creating that thick mucus layer. That's where the bacteria are hanging out on the stoop, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You know, they're chilling with their friends on the, the line of the colon, <laughs> right. creating that community of bacteria, right? Right. right? right. You don't necessarily, well, you certainly don't have that if you have an end ileostomy where, where the effluent from the GI tract is just flowing through and out. There's no hangout spot. There's no coffee shop for these mm -hmm. bacteria, right? They're just, they're in and out. It's like going through a drive-through. So when you have the ileoanal pouch creating this reservoir where the bacteria can sit for a little bit of time, guess what? We see that the microbiome is richer in that situation and mm. is able to produce some of those um, components that we get when patients actually have their full colon. Wow. So I think it would be very interesting to be using your products to look at some of these patients that have either some, all, none mm. of their large intestine and to say, okay, what do we do now that you had to have this surgically removed? How do we keep you healthiest knowing that your microbiome is, is certainly going to be different? Um, different, I think, can be good, but it has to, I think we have to put a little thought into that mm. as opposed to just saying, oh, everything's fine. Go ahead and eat whatever you like. We'll have to be more deliberate in the dietary recommendations that mm. we make for patients. And, and that brings me to the to the next question we have, which you know, when you, I mean, you work at Hogue. This is this is your bread and butter, right? Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and we're constantly beating this drum of microbiome and the importance of the microbiome. And here you are at times removing part of the colon where the microbiome lives. So, what's your experience in trying to address some of the imbalances both pre and post op? Because to your point, you have to reintroduce fiber at, after the fact. But before the fact, are there things you can do to the microbiome before surgery that might help? And then post op, are you using probiotics? Are you going gangbusters trying to build this up? Like what's your experience in addressing these imbalances pre and post op? Yeah, that's a that's a complex question. Because <laughs> honestly, we do a lot of things that feel like we're shooting ourselves in our foot. For mm -hmm. example, we give broad spectrum antibiotics mm -hmm. right before right. surgery right. to reduce surgical site infection right. in mm -hmm. colorectal surgical patients. And so mm -hmm. while we're trying to build up the microbiome preoperatively as best as we can, given potentially the limitations that a patient has with either obstruction, mm -hmm. pain, diarrhea, even fistula, you know, mm -hmm. that patients will have these abnormal connections between the small bowel and the colon, the small bowel and the skin, the small bowel and the vagina. I mean, mm -hmm. a right. fistula is that abnormal connection and patients will not want to eat because it exacerbates the symptoms of them. We're, our hands are a little bit tied right. because we will try to rebuild the microbiome by making recommendations for foods that are really healthy, but a patient may not be able to eat them. So in comes this concept of, okay, do we give probiotics? Well, as we know, probiotics, the, the quality of a probiotic, the, the, the number of live uh, organisms in a probiotic, I mean, we have some challenges in really identifying what is actually getting delivered to the right part of the GI tract. And so um, I think if it can't hurt, it might help, mm -hmm. you know, right. so we probably could try that. But then we go and give the big guns mm -hmm. of the broad right. spectrum antibiotics and we you know, it's like yeah. uh, totally zombie apocalypse. We've get, gotten rid of all the good stuff. Right. And we're left with 
a bowel that is vulnerable to these um, diseases that reside inside hospitals, the nosocomial infections like C. diff. Right. And you wonder why do C, why are C. diff, Clostridium difficile infections so high in hospitals? We've done it to ourselves. Yep. We've made, or our patients, we've made these patients uh, extremely vulnerable to an infection like that while trying to protect them from a different type of infection. It's really challenging. It's Yikes. it's walking on a tightrope, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Well, Yikes, I, I didn't, that didn't occur to me. Yeah, I mean, it, there's it's all complex systems, right? Everything right. is always yes. so intertwined and to, to try and address it. And, and another putting you on the spot, complicated, complex systems question um, <laughs> is, you know, like most chronic diseases, I think there's a lot of factors, right? They're multifactorial. So is there something that you've seen as far as triggers that tends to lend themselves more often, either in the uh, literature or in your patients, um, you know, whether that's a particular dietary strategy like standard American diet or, or, or any other trigger that might lend itself to the development or exacerbation of, of Crohn's colitis that you've seen? Probably the biggest factor is smoking. Hmm. So we know that cigarette and uh, tobacco use absolutely is like gasoline on a fire. So if I could make any recommendation to really anyone is to not smoke and to not be around smoke. And when patients have had Crohn's disease and then continue to smoke, it doesn't matter what medication you're giving. It doesn't matter how you change the diet. It is such a toxin that it will re-exacerbate that problem on such a level that we're, we're essentially helpless. And you're looking at someone who will end up having surgery multiple times in their life. And in fact, there, there are data in general for someone who has a first operation for Crohn's disease, there's about a 30% chance that they'll need a second operation. Mm-hmm. And in that group of second operation patients, there's about a 50% chance you'll have a third. And you mm-hmm. see the numbers climb right. because it's not necessarily that it will always be an exacerbation of Crohn's disease, but it might be adhesions that create pain. It might be bowel obstruction. It might be a hernia that's formed. And so every time we um, need to do surgery on a patient, we make them vulnerable for a lot of other things downstream. So if we can avoid the operation in the beginning, that would be ideal. And I commonly say, look, I'm a surgeon. I love to operate, but I only want to operate on the right people. I would not, I would love to not operate mm. on someone who could be essentially in remission because they avoided smoking, they ate a healthy diet, and they avoided other toxic environmental stressors Mm -hmm. that worsen chronic inflammatory disease. And I think when you you asked about diet, um, I would recommend probably the Mediterranean diet as, as, as a good foundational diet for most people, but especially if you're able to tolerate the the good healthy fats and the fiber that's in a Mediterranean diet with um, the right amount of protein, it's it's a pretty good diet as far as I'm concerned. And um, there are a lot of fad diets I've I've taken and been on all of them just for I don't know if it's just for funsies or if it's you know you're in the in the 90s and I'm like I'm going to be a vegan and I'm going to eat bagels and diet right. coke you know. Um, and so um, feel your pain on I, I that have, one. I've kind of uh, landed back to where the Mediterranean diet really suits me best, but I also see where it's the most healthful for uh, our patients, especially patients with GI um, conditions and have had surgery. Well, that's super helpful because we were going to ask you, like, if there's a patient out there listening and they've just received, let's just say they did a GI effects shout out. They had a high calprotectin. We sent them, they got scope. They have a brand new diagnosis. So I was going to ask you, what's, what's the advice you would give them? And it sounds like don't smoke, Mediterranean diet, mindfulness. Are there other things we're missing here to a patient who's out there listening who just got this and it feels like a death sentence to them? I think the most important thing is that every patient who has a condition like Crohn's disease, their condition is unique in that we have to understand what does the pattern of presentation of disease look like? Do they have upper GI symptoms and evidence of disease? Are they dealing with only anal rectal Crohn's disease? Do they have the most common form, which is ileocolic Crohn's disease, where the terminal ileum is inflamed just as it meets 
the ileocecal valve of the cecum of the right portion of the colon. So to understand what the presentation is, is it an obstructing type of Crohn's disease where you get a narrowing and really a fibrotic mm-hmm. uh, deposition of, of collagen that narrows their passageway that makes them not a good candidate for high fiber diet, um, high gas producing diet, because that will just create more bloat and more discomfort to that patient. Mm -hmm. So the patient who gets a new diagnosis, you'll want to know what the roadmap is so that you know what the GI tract looks like and then to make recommendations based on that. Because if you have stricturing and narrowed GI tract, you're going to say, okay, let's avoid really large amount of insoluble fiber because that may essentially create a bezoar or, you know, a, mm-hmm. a, 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 a collection of indigestible food that gets stuck just upstream from a stricture. And then they come into the hospital with a bowel obstruction and mm-hmm. we have to kind of undo those, um, you know, the, the, the intake that they had had had. So, Number one is to understand what the pattern of their condition looks like, and then to have a good understanding of what their long-term nutrition and acute nutrition has has looked like. So are they individuals that are extremely lean and have very little skeletal muscle mass because they have essentially been protein malnourished over a long period of time? So what's tough is that some of our traditional lab values, they don't give you that. You can look at albumin it is an acute phase reactant so it's not always telling you what the person's nutritional status is mm-hmm. i like to pair that with a prealbumin or a transthyretin where we're looking at what is the nutrition protein intake been like in the last three weeks i'll also throw in the bmi and it's not that bmi in and of itself is telling you healthy unhealthy because you can have a low bmi or a higher bmi and be in a healthy range, but you gotta use all of those tools to understand how can we optimize a patient's situation while they're considering perhaps medical management for inflammatory bowel disease. Um, And once again, as we're talking about, this isn't something we were taught in Mm -hmm. traditional medical education and certainly not in surgical education. Mm -hmm. Um, We were taught to, unfortunately, uh, just start eating again. You know, you're on a clear liquid diet, eat jello and soup. And if you can do it, go ahead and have a cheeseburger. Right. And while feeding is good, there's a lot of nuance that we need to understand in surgical um, nutrition that honestly, we, we, we need, we need uh, continuing medical education credits yeah. to, mm. to really be giving patients what they need. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it makes, it makes a ton of sense. I mean, yeah. it's got, it's, and it's already it's already so difficult difficult at baseline, right. but then to try to do that, you know, post op, um, I mean, it just adds such a layer of complexity. I'm, I'm sure to try and get those details uh, corrected. And um, we also happen to know a little bit of a tangent that you are a very accomplished endurance athlete. To get away from <laughs> IBD for just a second, or maybe not, or not. <laughs> Our experience right. is, you know, that we. A lot of times at looking at stool tests, we know that athletes can also show up with some GI issues related to their strenuous exercise strategies. And so, you know, with respect to long distance runners who tend to have things like leaky gut and other nonspecific symptoms, IBS, um, has this been your experience? Can I tell you a story? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I think answering these kind of questions is best with a personal uh, story that at times seems a little bit unbelievable, but um, you, you probably read about my my running, and I did a lot of running as a surgical oh, resident. Not only read about it, I looked up your times, <laughs> oh. and uh, very impressive, oh. I'll say. For those of you who don't know, she's a very accomplished endurance runner, Boston Marathon many times over. Just saying. I I got I, I got into running. I ran my first race when I was four years old. And my father was a distance runner. And so I ran a mile race at the age of four. And I then began running just for fun. And I did run in high school. And then I went to University of Oregon, which is a huge running tradition, and did some of my first marathons when I was up in Eugene. And you, anyone who's done a marathon pays attention to the fact that there's porta potties lining Uh the Uh beginning 
and portions of the race and you wonder why it's not uh -huh. just because you have to go pee right right <laughs> before you start your your gut is is hyperactive it's it's feeling that mind gut connection on a level that's you know feels like it's on steroids because you're nervous and the gi track is ramped up and so Anyhow, that's an aside. I got into running at in college uh, marathons. And then when I was a surgical resident in Boston, somebody said to me, hey, do you want to run the Boston Marathon? Because we have a charity bib number mm -hmm. if you'd like to run and raise money for the children's hospital. And I said, it's been a while. It's been 10 years since I ran a marathon like that. But yeah, I'll do it. And so I ran the Boston Marathon the last four years of my surgical residency every year and then did a lot of kind of ultra running as a surgical resident. And here's the weird thing. I just kept thinking that as a surgeon, it, basically surgery is an endurance event in and of itself. Right. Sometimes we're doing surgery right. for eight to 10 yes. hours. Mm -hmm. One yes. of my colleagues does cases that are 18 to 20 hours long. I mean, that's endurance right. sports in and of itself. Yeah. But from from my my state of mind at the time was well let's see how much i could push myself physically and mentally <laughs> and then you know and maybe that will make me a better surgeon oh. well first of all i want to call this like athletic masochism because basically <laughs> what you're doing is you are pushing yourself to a level that you wonder why you have medical problems after you do these things mm -hmm. i'll tell you why mm -hmm. yeah. but here's my story that i was going to tell you is, okay one of the years that I ran, 2004, was one of the hottest years on record for the Boston Marathon. It was, I think it topped out about 87 degrees that year. And that's hot for April in Boston. And it's humid and you're not prepared because you didn't train in any heat. And then suddenly it was like, bam, right. you're running. And each year I'd want to best my time from the year before because I wanted to qualify in Boston so I could run it the next year mm -hmm. wow. and, you know, not have to run another race, you know, to qualify. So what happened is you can, you couldn't drink enough fluid. You mm. were drinking Gatorade water. There were spectators on the side of the road trying to give you beer or whatever it is. I would have drank anything that came my way because you were so hot and thirsty mm -hmm. in this, you know, sweltering heat. Well, after the race, I realized oh wait, you're on call tonight for the kidney transplant team. Mm. And so, so I was like, I gotta go home and really you know, eat something and get dressed and go to the hospital after I had run in this heat. What? And I get, I get to the hospital, I'm like, I gotta go to the bathroom. My GI system was ramped up and I go, oh my gosh, there's nothing but blood. <gasps> and what essentially I had was ischemic colitis. What? Wow. So I had such a um, insult as the blood from your splanchnic or your GI tract is being shunted away to your muscles. I had basically ischemia to my colon wow. and I had just blood instead of any bowel movement when I went to the bathroom. Well, here's the masochist in me. I go, mm, okay, go get some fluids in the emergency room and then... <laughs> Just go and get ready for the kidney transplant. Instead of saying, "What is wrong with wait, you?" Wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. Um, you you actually have a life threatening problem, right. and you kind of need to. So I got four liters of fluid before I really started peeing, and I probably had rhabdomyolysis too, right? right but right. I did. I, I wouldn't have known. And and of course, my other colleagues are like, "What's wrong with you? Just get in there. That's your case. The case is going to start." <laughs> I had an IV pole attached to my, I had an wow. IV attached to me and a pole and I'm rolling into the operating room. And one of the nurses is like, you are not doing this. No. Like you're not doing this. No. And luckily I had a, a chief resident at the time who said, you know what, I, I'm going into transplant. I'll go and do the kidney transplant. And I laid down in the call room and I woke up in the morning and I realized I, I really hurt myself. So, <laughs> oh so to God. answer yourself, answer the question about endurance athletes, First of all, when you push yourself that hard, you can have very specific problems and you can also have kind of non-specific symptoms. And this is where it can be really tough. Mm. Um, I didn't mention this, but my husband is a CrossFit Masters competitor. Wow. So he's going to the CrossFit Games this year. Wow. Um, it's, wow. He, he's a bucket list for him. He's in the 45 to 49 year old category cool. and he's sixth in the world right now. Wow. So, Good on him. Yeah, wow. he's kind of an 
you know, a little bit of an underachiever himself. Um, <laughs> but he was always saying to me, I have this, I have that. Is this something serious? I have diarrhea. I'm like, well, it's all that protein stuff you're eating. And he's like, what if it's typhoid fever? It's not typhoid fever. <laughs> you know, I have this sniffle. Do I have COVID? But, you know, endurance athletes, they get to that point where you can't tell the difference yeah. between something real and something really wrong. Um, and it's something really wrong or something that's just going to pass on its own. So you, you got to look at the chronicity and you got to take care of yourself. Right. Endurance. I mean, endurance athleticism is almost like a full time job. Yeah. Right. That speaks to the whole piece yeah, of recovery and hypercortisolism and, you know, being more prone to things. This is. Oh, gosh, Elizabeth, what is wrong with you? That's <laughs> yeah. crazy talk. The number of times I've been I, there, you know, yeah, I mean, like, in the surgery room, yeah, connected. It's, it's so it's, embarrassing it's like, to say it because I think, did I really do that? <laughs> oh, my gosh, I really did that. That's... That's like psychiatrically so, not stable. No, right? but, it, so. but it makes the point. It makes such a good point of how important your gut. It's like the gut brain axis, your second brain, right? And you're overtaxing yourself. It's going to act up. It's it's just and it's just speaks so well to recovery, right? To take better care of ourselves, especially if you're an athlete, any human being, just to recover and take better better care of ourselves in general. But I will say. Dr. Elizabeth Raskin, we've been dying to meet you, yeah. and you have not disappointed. This great. has been so fun and such amazing information. And, and you know, some part of me wants to keep contact because I think there's a lot that Genova can do with these surgical patients to kind of really study this and mm -hmm. study the microbiome pre and post op, and just maybe publish on this. So we're going to keep contact for sure because we're now best friends. Yeah, but I would love to. In fact, if yeah. there are providers out there that are thinking the same thing, especially yeah. my my surgical colleagues. Sure. Let's let's connect on this because yeah. this will open up um, sure. so many therapeutic pathways for patients if we could figure out how to best support them. Yep. We've yep. got the stool testing. Yeah, we we've got the data. nutritional testing. We need the data. Mm -hmm. So I mm -hmm. think it's, it's, it'll be great to change the world. So this will be awesome. But because I know you happen to listen to this quirky, strange little show, <laughs> Dr. Raskin, I think you know that there's another final question that uh -oh. I'm going to kick to Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fireball question. Okay, so this is um, a silly question that's supposed to catch you off guard, as you might know. And so reading back through all about you, Dr. Raskin, I'll have you know, I spent some time in Tucson, Arizona. I actually attended University of Arizona for a brief stint. Uh, so yeah. I have some familiarity with the desert and oh, cactuses. Uh -oh. And it just so happens that you are um, you're a cactus gardener, a cacti gardener. And That's right. my feeling of them are um, uh -oh. dangerous, not fun, prickly. <laughs> I've, I've gotten pr uh, teddy bear cactuses in my arms. I've gotten, mm -hmm. fell into a prickly pear. Oh, my God. Luckily, didn't like run into a saguaro on my bike or anything like that. But um, I've had I have choice experiences with them. And so my question is, why cactuses? I mean, are they misunderstood? What's going on here? <laughs> the, the cactus is misunderstood. And. It's funny because my I have three children and none of them will touch the cacti, but they respect its majesty. Mm -hmm. And okay. I think much like complex surgical patients that can be challenges, you know, to, to assist in the proper way, the cactus needs a lot of care and it needs a compassionate gardening soul to take care of these uh, unique plants. I love the resilience of a cactus. So mm -hmm. first of all, you can have less than half an inch of water a year in certain deserts and these brilliant life forms thrive yeah. and not only that when they get a little bit of water they bloom in the most majestic way mm -hmm. that it just takes your breath away so i am a huge xerophile uh, of both uh, <laughs> loving desert plants but also loving desert landscape and I think it's the the environment that suits me suits me best. Um, the desert will open your mind to a lot of uh, magical thinking, and I think sometimes it's what you need to reset. To be honest, well That's done. My wife actually That's she beautiful. says something to that effect all the time. Do you have a favorite cactus? I have well, I have something like two hundred species in Ooh. my garden, and I don't want to upset the other oh, ones by yes. pointing out the, your the who's one your favorite that kid, Michael. Most. Which kid's your favorite? Yeah, <laughs> but I would say um, I have a I, I have a cactus that was given to me by a family member, and so I care for that one. 
and it's a big barrel cactus mm -hmm. and it's just grown exponentially over the years and i'm pretty proud of it in fact the best gift that my husband ever gave me he was so excited i have an anniversary present for you i found it on the side of the road it was this arm of a cactus that had fallen into the street and he jumped out of his car threw it in the trunk and then gave it to me oh, and oh. now it's double in size but yeah. i would say that's probably my favorite cactus in the garden it are the ones that my family members have given to me and i've been able to care for oh that's awesome Aww. We well love done. you, Dr. Raskin. <laughs> You're the best. I love you guys, too. <laughs> well, again, we're absolutely going to keep in touch because we're now BFFs. But that being mm -hmm. said, we can't thank you enough for coming on the show. This is, you know, a side of, of medicine that we don't talk about enough. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of great information out there for not only patients, but clinicians who care for these patients. So thank you so much for your time, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. And keep doing what you do because it really is making a difference and it's opening the eyes of many patients and clinicians in a way that we just never imagined before. So I'm grateful to be here. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. All right. I'm inspired now. And you want to know why I'm inspired, Michael? You're always inspired, but why are you Fair. particularly inspired right now? That's actually a good point. I love it when conventional medicine really starts to turn towards functional medicine and root cause medicine. And it really looks like that message is getting out there in the conventional world. And it makes me happy. You know what's really funny about that what? is there's part of this to where I almost sort of remember like the first six months of you working here yep. at Genova. Yep. And like how we would sit and you would you would say something and I'd be like how do you know that to be true <laughs> what about this perspective and you're like oh i never really thought about it that way <laughs> or you guys would be talking about something and i would just be like feverishly making notes to go look this stuff up saying how did i never learn this how did we not learn this in medical school and so to hear someone like this award winning colorectal surgeon start to embrace this mm -hmm. entire field is mm -hmm. just so inspiring to me i love it i remember the first time you bought ashwagandha i do too I was like, oh, we got her. That's right. <laughs> she, You're going to have to drag me out of here by my ankles. I'm never leaving. She bought Ashwagandha. That's right. She can't even, she doesn't even have to spell it or pronounce ah, it, but I know I must it's have right it. there on her desk. Must have it. Next time on The Lab Report, Amber Shaw. Talk about someone who makes my day happier. I go to her Instagram to cheer myself up. You mean like when you're not crushing it as much as you're normally crushing it? Well, what you do know, you mean? There are, there are levels of crushing it. I see. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. So I'm driving back from lunch okay. today. Oh, uh-huh. And I'm at a stoplight. And guess what is in front of me? Um, a, I don't know, black bear. A DeLorean. Whoa! And to that's boot, so great. To boot, uh huh. The license plate says "Power of Love." Dude, that's your signature karaoke song. I feel like it was a message from for the it was. the universe directly to me. Yeah, it was. I don't know what the message is, <laughs> other than just "Back to the Future" is awesome. I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe I should watch it tonight. Good plan. Or buy a DeLorean. Yes. <laughs>